You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy and sacred word, Father. And we look to you, Lord, that you would be pleased to bless us as we study your word, as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to apply your word to our lives, and lastly, as we seek to walk in that application. So, Father, we ask for your blessing to be upon all of these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Someone might be thinking, well, wait a second, we were on Psalm 61 two weeks ago. Why are we back on Psalm 61? Well, we really only got to verse 2 last time, didn't we? <laughs> That's why we're back on Psalm 61. All kidding aside, as I see it, some of you aren't laughing, but all kidding aside, now you're laughing. <laughs> all kidding aside, <laughs> there's, a, there's a point that I really wanted to make, and I thought about making it last time, but it, it really would have been too long. I, um, there's always a temptation to show up here with a big truck, you know, and to like just dump, <laughs> you know, all of this stuff on you. And um, for the sake of not burying you in details, I decided maybe what we ought to do is just take another morning and uh, look, especially at verses six and seven uh, this morning. And before we do that, I mean, our memories may be fading. Maybe some of us might be sitting here thinking, were we on Psalm 61 two weeks ago? And if, if, if that is the case, don't, don't fret over that. Our, our memories do fade. Um, uh, over time, don't they? It's sometimes very difficult to to remember. Um, and some of us may not have been here two weeks ago, so you didn't hear anything. Uh, in, in both cases, I think a, a quick review is is uh, prudent. And if you remember, as I said two weeks ago, if you remember anything about Psalm 61, it's probably the line in, in verse 2, uh, namely that line, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you're like me, I mean, that's the line that my mind clings to when I think of Psalm 61. Okay, Psalm 61, that's the lead me to the rock song. Yes, that's the one. Uh, And that was the focus of our study last time. And you'll also recall, if you heard the message, that the title of the psalm informs us that David is the author of the psalm. And we're not 100% sure on this, on what occasioned the psalm. Uh, but it's widely held that David probably composed this psalm 
as he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. And if you're familiar with the history, uh, Absalom led a rebellion against his father, David, very powerful rebellion. And uh, this meant that David had to flee out of Jerusalem. And this is a little bit foreign to us, but um, in antiquity and even today for that matter, when these kind of rebellions take place, uh, that old adage, this town isn't big enough for the two of us, one of us has to go, uh, applies. Uh, For Absalom to be successful in his rebellion means that David has to be, he has to be executed. Um, So this is a really vicious thing. It'd be hard to imagine what that would be like for one of your children to covet something that you have so much that they would be willing to destroy you to have it. Um, And this is what's going on. And of course, David has to flee because Absalom has been so successful in this rebellion that he has the support of the armies of Israel. And David has something like 600 men that he is um, that he is fleeing with. So we can see from that that David is in great danger. Uh, and it had to have been a very confusing danger. Um, we know from, you read the account and uh, you learn that David, even though his son is, uh, has risen up against him and will kill him, uh, first opportunity he gets, David, of course, is his father and David doesn't want anything to happen to his son. So it would be a terrible time. Uh, one, I think it would be very difficult for us uh, to even begin to imagine. Uh, um, so it's out of this danger and out of this time, if that indeed is the context, uh, that David calls out uh, to God and, and he cries out, lead me to the rock that is higher than I in, in verse two. And, and very clearly in this context, the rock is a metaphor uh, for a savior, isn't it? Uh, it's a metaphor for a savior. Uh, David is looking for protection. He's looking for protection from the one who is greater and more powerful than he is. And we might remind ourselves, I think it'd be prudent to remind ourselves that David is king of Israel. And not only is he king of Israel, he is the Lord's anointed king of Israel. Anyone else who would be trying to take that position would be an imposter. David is the Lord's anointed And yet, as the Lord's anointed, and we might say anointed with a lowercase a here, as the Lord's anointed, he calls on God to lead him to a rock that is higher than himself. And of course, as New Testament believers, we recognize that the rock is none other than Christ Jesus. Amen? And I, I spent some time on that word lead. It's easy to miss. It's very easy to miss. You know, we focus on the rock uh, that we sometimes will miss that word lead. David, David says, lead me. His prayer is lead me. Lead me where? To the rock that is higher than I. But, but a very crucial word here is lead me. And the point that I made last week is a point that we always need to keep in mind is that self-sufficiency is the enemy of all this, isn't it? Uh, and it has a tendency to rear its head all the time, doesn't it? Uh, all the time, uh, regardless of what you're doing. And in fact, right now, as I'm trying to teach and preach, uh, the temptation is to do it, okay, do it in your own strength. 
You know, write the sermon in your own strength. Preach the sermon in your own strength. It is possible to come up and, and to preach a message and it's possible to preach a, preach a message in and of your own strength that people enjoy and get a little bit of something out of. You can do that. It's done commonly all the time. But what is impossible is to get any eternal benefit out of it. As a, a pastor, I'm always aiming for that eternal benefit. You know, we may sit here on a Sunday morning and it may be an average morning and you might not remember anything as you go down the bottom of the steps. But rest assured, your soul is being fed. You are being fed. And it's always amazing. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of like a door of opportunity opens and you've suddenly been find that you're able to talk uh, to someone in a way that you don't aren't usually able to talk. And, and you can be amazed if you've had this experience of, just how much stuff starts coming out. And you think to yourself, whoa, where did all that come from? Well, the Holy some of you are smiling. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Where did all that come from? It comes from these average Sunday mornings where you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, oh, um, I mean, how much longer is he going to go on? Well, some, some mornings are average like that, aren't they? That's just the way they are. But that God is working very powerfully in the midst of them. Uh, very, very powerfully in the midst of self-sufficiency is the enemy of all of this. Uh, we come in here not, not depending on ourselves in any way. Lord, lead me. Lead me to that rock that is higher than I. So after calling on the Lord to lead him, uh, David praises the Lord for past mercy. Look at verse 3. He says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Notice the tense there. You have been. David is looking in the past, he's looking at past mercies that he has uh, received from the Lord. Listen, David has been in danger before. My goodness, read the story of David throughout First uh, Samuel and Second Samuel. And uh, for many years, he was in constant danger. He's been in these jams before, and he's had the experience of God's deliverance many times. And these are faith-strengthening experiences. If you've been up against it before and you've called on the Lord and you realize that there's no way out of this save the Lord helping me and you experienced his helping hand, that is faith strengthening. How is it faith strengthening? Because you can look back on it when you find yourself in another jam and you can say, you know, here we are again. But we've been there before. You know how many times Tammy and I have said that to each other? Hey, we've been here before. Well, the first time was pretty scary. Second time was a little bit scary. Yeah, the third and fourth time. Okay, here we go again. It could be, in, a, it could be in, a, in all areas of life. All areas of life. David is looking back to past experiences of mercy. And he has seen, he's looking back. You know, he's saying, you have been my refuge. You have been my savior before. You have been a strong tower against the enemy. And then in verse four, he cries out, let me dwell in your tent forever. Um, this is the privilege of family here in verse four. Um, think about it. Who dwells in your home? Do complete strangers who you've never met before dwell in your home? Uh, generally speaking, no. We may, we may let somebody in that we don't know and give them shelter for a period of time. But who, who occupies your home? Who occupies your house? It's your family or it's close friends who are like family. Amen. 
And David here is crying, let me dwell in your tent, not just let me dwell in your tent, but let me dwell in your tent forever. And this is further emphasized by the beautiful phrase in verse 4b, if you will, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And of course, that's the imagery of little chicks in a nest underneath the protective and and warmth of, of their mother's wing, isn't it? That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? And let us pause for a moment and think this is the imagery that God wants to communicate to us so that we could see the kind of nurturing and care that he has for us. Uh, It's not any kind of indifferent kind of, uh, well, here you go, uh, kind of mercy that God is offering to us, is it? This is really intimate and lovely stuff. And it meets real deep felt needs that we have, each one of us. No matter how strong we may appear to be on the outside, uh, this really speaks to the heart. And then in beginning of verse 5, David expresses confidence that the Lord hears him. He says, for you, O God, you have heard my vows. It's always important for us to remember God hears us. He hears us uh, when we come to him. When, when you come to him in saving faith, he hears you. Uh, It's important for us to always remember this. Now, the point that I want to get to this morning really begins in the second part of verse five, but we're not going to get to that. And that doesn't mean that we're going to go back to Psalm 61 next week. I don't think we will. (laughs) We'll save it for another day. But again, the message will probably become a little bit long if we went into that. So the point that I want to share with you this morning really is going to come from verse six and seven. Um, Let's begin with verse six, where David calls on the Lord to prolong the life of the king. Do you see that right there? I think that we have a tendency to check out when we get to those kind of verses, prolong the life of the king. Uh, We don't live in a kingdom, so to speak. Um, This is kind of foreign to us. Uh, I'm not speaking for everyone in the room. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't check out on it. I kind of like it. Wow, maybe you do. I don't know. But me, in the past, as I've been studying scripture, I have a tendency that my, my mind kind of checks out right there. Uh, prolong the life of the king. Let, let's tease that a little bit because there's a really, there's real, a real game changer here once you begin to understand what's going on. David, uh, I, I don't know if, if the occasion of this psalm is David's flight from Absalom. It probably is. I can't say with 100% certainty. But what we can say with 100% certainty is David's in great danger. Uh, that much is for sure. Uh, something terribly has gone wrong. We can also be certain that David is king of Israel. Uh, We can be certain of that. We can also be certain that David is the Lord's anointed king of Israel. We can be certain of that. And for this reason, we can understand David's petition, prolong the life of the king. Uh, David doesn't want to die. He wants to get out of this. So we can understand this on the surface. Uh, But there's a lot more going on here than that. Uh, Let me explain. For starters, notice the language that David uses in verses six and seven. He says, prolong the life of the king. Okay, we got that. David doesn't want to die. But then he says, may his years endure to what? All generations. And then when you go to verse seven, may he be enthroned forever before God. Now, David's using eternal language here, isn't he? Uh, Human kings don't live forever. I mean, a human king can endure for all generations. I mean, he can endure for what, a generation or two? 
uh, I'm drawn from memory, but reading the history of Israel, I think uh, one or two of the kings maybe reigned for 50 plus years. That's about it. Um, two generations approximately. Um, here David says, may he, may he um, endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever. What's going on here? What's going on here is David is recalling the covenant promise that God has made uh, with him. Uh, you hold your place in, 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 first, in uh, Psalm 61 and turn back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you look at verses 12 and, uh, 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7. I think it's worth our time to point there, to look there really quickly. God comes to David through Nathan the prophet. He says in verse 12 to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See that language there? There's that eternal language again. That God has made this promise to David. Um, now, um, David, you know, uh, we could ask the question when David, back to Psalm 61, when David prays, prolong the life of the king, we may ask the question, well, who's David have in mind here? Does he have himself in mind here? Or does he have his successor in mind here? What David has in his mind at this exact moment, I don't know for sure. But what I do know for sure is that uh, David doesn't remain king forever, does he? No, he passes away. And who takes his place? Solomon takes his place, his son Solomon. And how, how, well, how's that go? Well, Solomon has a pretty good start, doesn't he? You know the story where the Lord appears to Solomon and, and uh, basically uh, Solomon asks the Lord for wisdom. You know, he doesn't ask for riches or for honor or any of these things. He asks for riches or for wisdom rather. And the Lord is really pleased with him. And the Lord endows him with wisdom like no other king or no other human being save Jesus Christ ever had. And so Solomon becomes famous for uh, his wisdom. But unfortunately, Solomon also becomes famous for something else. And that is his unfaithfulness. You know, um, Solomon, you know, had a, a fetish for the ladies, if you will, especially foreign ladies, which was a pretty big no-no. Uh, he, he had 700 wives. Yeah, I just saw a couple of looks. Um, and on top of that, 300 girlfriends. Um, you know, I... Try to imagine keeping all them birthdays and the anniversary sorted out. Hey, did you get such and such a card? It's our anniversary. Well, you've got three anniversaries. Uh, there's three anniversaries today, Solomon. I mean, uh, we forgot one of them. Give us a break. And, uh, and we can laugh about this. I mean, I, you imagine how much time he must have spent planning weddings and being just, uh, Solomon's being married today. Solomon's being married every day. Hey, was you at Solomon's wedding? Which one? There's 700 of them. 
It's, it's a, just, it's, you start teasing it out, it's unimaginable, isn't it? Now, why is this such a big no-no? Well, it, <laughs> it's a whole sermon for another day, okay? But let me just say this. <laughs> let me just say one thing. It's because these foreign women had foreign gods. And that principle will be unequally yoked applies here. You know, um, what, what, will these, what will these foreign women do to Solomon's heart? They're gonna, the warning God gives us is this going to turn your heart away from me. And that's, that's exactly what happens. You know, that's exactly what happens. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. A little lengthy reading and it'll go easier for you if you're just reading along with me. 1 Kings 11. And we'll see what, what happens here. 1 Kings 11 verses 9 through 13. Everyone's found place. First Kings 11, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear all away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Okay. Solomon has been unfaithful. And because of this, the Lord promises to tear away the kingdom from his son. Solomon is being blessed by the coattails of his father, David. He's saying, well, because of your father, David, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. I'm going to do it in your son's lifetime. So he's been unfaithful. And now the kingdom is going to be torn from him. And if you're familiar with the history, you know that his son, Rehoboam, takes his place. And how's things go with Rehoboam? Well, he makes the first order of business, botching it up about as bad as you could possibly botch it up. Because it is indeed, the kingdom is torn uh, in, in two pieces uh, right away. I mean, that's the very first order of business as king. Rehoboam botches it up. And the 10 northern tribes, the, the 10 tribes, they take their, their toys and they go, they go up north. And uh, uh, they, they appoint their own king, Jeroboam. And th- th- what is the effect of all this on the people of God? What is the effect of this on the kingdom? The kingdom is divided. In fact, it stays that way. It's, it's divided. It's such a drift that it never really comes back together. Uh, it's, it's divided. And Jeroboam, what, what does Jeroboam do? Well, he's so punk, power hungry. He doesn't want people making pilgrimage back down to Jerusalem, back down to Judah. See, Rehoboam, he'll be king of Judah and, and uh, Jeroboam's king of the, the 10 northern tribes. He doesn't want people going back down to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to lose influence on them. So he sets up these shrines with these golden calves and he leads Israel to worship these golden calves. So what is the effect of that on the people? Well, they're led into gross idolatry, aren't they? So here they're being led into division. They're being led into idolatry. And you're still in 1 Kings 11. Look at verse 14. The Lord raised up what? An adversary against Solomon. 
What's that all about? Well, because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, peace is slowly going to be taken away. These enemies that had been in remission by God's restraining grace, they weren't able to challenge Solomon because they didn't have the resources to challenge Solomon. Well, God's going to start removing that restraining grace from these enemies. And they're going to start gaining some steam and some resources. And guess what? They're going to become a real thorn in Solomon's side. What effect does this have on the people? Peace is slowly taken away. Peace is slowly taken away. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with 1 Kings and 2 Kings, if you've ever read it, there's a line in it that you've probably been struck because you've read it many times. It goes like this. And such and such, the name of the king, and such and such, son of such and such, began to reign. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. You, anybody read the, these books and remember those phrases? Uh, and such and such, son of such and such, began to reign, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But by God's grace, once in a while, you'll read a line. And he'll say, and such and such, son of such and such, began to reign, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. Or uh, more often, it'll say, as uh, another father had done. But you'll see that line reoccurring. You'll see it going over and over. Now, here's my point. King Solomon has been unfaithful. Therefore, the kingdom has been torn in two. What effect does this have on the people? They're divided. They're divided. And... Peace is slowly taken away. King Jeroboam does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, setting up the golden calves. What effect does this have on the people? They've been led into idolatry, into gross sin. Now, by God's grace, a couple of the kings, they do right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Hosea would be a, a, a very good example of this. Uh, he, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and what is the effect of, of his kingship? Well, it led to reform. Um, it led to uh, uh, to reform. Now, I don't want to give anyone the impression here that the people are responsible for the, the sins of the king, but I am trying to show that there's a powerful correlation between the righteousness or unrighteousness of the king and the welfare of the people. Once you see that powerful correlation that takes place. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to uh, Psalm 61, verses 6 and 7. David says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. And this last line is especially pertinent. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Is it in the benefit of the people that faithfulness watch over the king? Oh, it has everything to do with the people, doesn't it? Because wickedness in the throne room brings misery and death, doesn't it? But righteousness in the throne room has the opposite effect of bringing godliness and all of the things that attend to that. Now, the application I want to make this morning is probably not the application you think I'm going to make. It's probably not. Because I think most of the time when we've gone down this road, here's where we end up. Okay, good leader is a blessing. Bad leader is a curse. 
And then off we go in the, whatever the current political stuff is of the hour of the day. Not to diminish the importance of whatever the current political mess is of the day. But listen to me, man. Today's a mess in politics. Yesterday was a mess in politics. I'm going to give you a guess as to what tomorrow will be in politics. Can I hear you? It's going to be a mess. That's the way it always is, is a mess. And too often, these kinds of sermons stop right here. And good leaders are a blessing. Amen. True. That is 100% true. Bad leaders are a curse. 100% true. A lot of times, the way God gives a nation a whooping is to raise up poor leadership. And I think we've been getting a whooping. I think all will agree. That's a truism. That's true. That's not where I want to go. That's not my point this morning. That is not where I want to go this morning. Because I don't believe that's the direction Scripture is pointing us. I think once we step off, I think once we go down that road, we actually step off the train. And I don't want to step off the train. I want the train to take us right where it's supposed, right where it's meant to take us. Who do the kings of Israel and Judah point to? Who does David point to? Who is David? David is a type of who? He is a type of Christ. Do you remember from our study in the catechism? Jesus is, in terms of his office, he is a prophet, he is a priest, and what else? Say it loudly. He is what? He's a king. He's a king. And David is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. He is a type of this king. Now, um, if we look at Psalm 61, verses 6 to 7, we can see that it's clearly pointing to Christ. May his years endure to all generations. Uh, may he be enthroned uh, uh, forever before God. Who else could this possibly apply to? None of the human kings. Merely human kings. Jesus is fully human. But he's also fully God, isn't he? And in Psalm 2, we, we read about the king. As for me, I have appointed my king on my holy hill. You see, these Psalms point to Jesus. They point to Christ. And David here is pointing to Christ. He is thinking and praying God's thoughts right after him. And the point that I want to make is if Christ is our king, we shall not want. We shall not want. Let me, let me flesh this out. There's a correlation between the righteousness of the king and the welfare of the people. Unrighteous king, curse. Sin, misery, death, all the things that attend to it. Righteous king, you have godliness, you have blessing, you have life. You can flourish under that. Hosiah, um, again, is a, a great example of this. David was the greatest of the line of mere earthly kings and Israel flourished under David. And that is why the Jewish people so longed for a king to come in the likeness of David. They were longing for that. And for good reason were they longing for that. Uh, they should have longed for that. Uh, Israel is actually a superpower in the world under David's leadership. Uh, they, they, were new, they were number one in the world uh, in terms of the known world at that time. Of course, the Jewish people long for that. But we have a greater king than David. David was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. Jesus actually is a perfect king. Let me, let me make some comparisons between David and, and Jesus. I mean, David, David was a good king because he ruled in righteousness. Not perfectly, but he ruled in righteousness. 
David was a good king because he united the people together. A good leader. If you want to see a good leader actually brings a unifying message and unites people together. Unfortunately, a wicked king or a wicked leader can unify a nation towards wicked ends. Adolf Hitler would be a great example of that from history. But nevertheless, one of the marks of a really good leader is to bring people together. David was a good leader. He brought Israel together. He protected Israel. He subdued Israel's enemies. These are all marks of an excellent leader. But let's think about this for a minute. Think about Christ. And if we make those same comparisons of Christ, uh, Christ is a perfect leader. Does Jesus rule in righteousness? Absolutely. He rules in perfect righteousness. In fact, he does something that no earthly king could do or would even ever conceive of doing. Not only does Jesus rule in righteousness, but he actually gives to all his people his righteousness, doesn't he? I mean, if you're in Christ this morning, you're actually clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. What human king could do that? David could never do that. No human king could do that because they don't have any perfect righteousness to offer anyone. But Jesus has this perfect righteousness that he's able to offer to everyone in his kingdom. And what about unity? Does Jesus bring his people together? Well, we'd look at the church today and say, oh my goodness, the church is so ununified. Wait a second. Okay, the church is in progress. But let's think about this unity. Uh, Jesus does bring amazing unity. In fact, during the first century, there were two groups that did not get along. Gentiles and Jews. They did not get along. They wouldn't even sit down and have a meal together. They did not get along. Yet, Jesus is raised from the dead, ascends to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, the gospel message begins to get proclaimed, and what starts happening? You can't believe what I saw today. Yeah, you know, those those two were, were eating together. What two? You know them two that have been feuding forever? You know, they've been shooting at each other and they've been doing they've been, they hate each other. I seen them down at Connie's and they were having breakfast. I'm saying, no, yeah. And it, it didn't look forced. I mean, it, it, it looked like they actually enjoyed each other's company. Well, it's because they did. How does this happen? The New Testament describes this as a wall of hostility. The wall of hostility gets broken down. That wall of hostility that exists between people who are different from each other. That wall of hostility that divides everybody gets brought down. How does it get brought down? Because the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a new attitude, a new hearted attitude. We begin to love the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, soul, and strength. Not perfectly, but we begin to do it. We never were doing it. And as a result of loving the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, what happens? We begin to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if they are a different color of skin, even if they do believe in a different shade of politics than us. We begin to love them. As we begin to love them, guess what? We become unified by a unifying message, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings incredible unity to people who could never otherwise be brought together. He is an excellent leader. Christ also protects his people. He goes to the cross and defeats the greatest enemy of our souls, Satan himself. And he defeats him. Hangs him with his own noose, doesn't he? He defeats him. Jesus really, truly is the rock who has hired us. The arch enemy of your soul is Satan himself. 
All the enemies of your soul work for him. Jesus comes in and defeats him. He's not only the rock who's higher than us, he's the rock who's higher than, than Satan. He defeats them all. Jesus also subdues our enemies. And we also learn from the catechism that one of the enemies of Jesus is ourselves in our natural state, isn't it? In our natural state, we are actually at enmity with Jesus. And someone might hear that and say, well, I don't hate Jesus. Yeah, but you're indifferent to him. I mean, you don't really care. Um, you, you know, you, you're, listen, indifference, if we just don't really care, um, if we're like, you know, Jesus, you, I'm, I'm fine with you out there. Just do whatever it is that you do. And I'm going to do whatever it is that I do, okay? And everything's going to be wonderful. That's indifference. Indifference is a form of hatred. It's a form of hatred. Jesus has to actually subdue that hatred. He has to subdue us. And that's what he does. That's what the gospel does. How does he do it? He wins our hearts. Teaching us that, yeah, you know what? You hated me. But I loved you. And while you were hating me, I went to the cross and died for you. And when we receive that in faith, what's it do? It melts that hard heart. And he subdues an enemy and wins them and they become a lover. And we will face persecution in this life. Jesus promises it. He promises that we'll face persecution in this life. But he is still our protector. Because in eternity, we will never be taunted again. Never. Because he will protect us. Our country is so divided right now. I mean, there's such constant turmoil everywhere we turn. You know, you hear pundits on both sides constantly picking each other. I mean, I think as believers, I just want to leave you with one last thought. I think as believers, we really need to stop right now. What I mean is like we come to the red light, you're supposed to, you're supposed to stop at those things, by the way. When they're yellow, you're supposed to slow down, not speed up. The red light means stop. I think we really need to stop. I mean, we all could wish that we had this policy and we had that policy. We all could wish that we had this president or that president. We all could all wish that we had this senator or that senator. We could all wish and long for all of these things, but the fact is it is what it is. And here's what I'm afraid has happened to the church is that as we have longed for the leaders that we don't have. We have forgotten about the king that we do have. We need to see that behind all of this, behind all of this, Jesus is reigning. He's reigning supreme. And if you look at the history books, if you know anything about history books, this is the same old playbook that's been played so many times. It's, we could be made miserable for a short period of time, but it's not going to work. It's been tried so many times and it has failed so many times. It's not going to work. Jesus is king and he is going to accomplish all that he set out to accomplish and you can count on it. And very soon we will be in the immediate presence of our king. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this real game-changing uh, truth that we find tucked in Psalm 61. That, Father, we, we have a king who's reigning supreme, who endures to all generations, 
Leaders come and leaders go, but you are always the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And we thank you and praise you that we have a righteous king. We have a righteous king that brings unity to his kingdom, subdues his enemies, protects us. And Father, even though we see what's going on all around us, we know that it won't succeed. Because you are truly the rock that is higher than, than everyone. You are truly the rock that is higher than all collectively. So Father, we praise you. Father, help us to see as we look at the news, as we hear of what's going on, help us to be rock steady and rock solid and see this for what it is, that, for, that Father, you have set your king on Zion, your holy hill, and his kingdom is never shaken. And Father, we thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.